Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Now, with that, let me take a few moments to draw your attention to this portion of God's Word. Um, We celebrated the Lord's Supper, and we've also been talking about um, how the Lord would build his congregation. Remember, that's sort of our theme this year. I will build my congregation, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And over the weeks that we've reflected on that promise, we've noticed the different ways in which the Lord would build his body. One of those ways is through prayer. Prayer can move the heart and strength of God in some enormous ways. And we saw that with Eliezer, Abraham's servant, who prayed and said, the woman who would not only give me something to drink, but will also water my camels, is the one who will be my master's son's wife. What an incredible prayer. I don't know if I could pray a prayer like that. I mean, he had 20, what was it, 10 camels. Each one holds 20 gallons of water. That's 200 gallons of water. She's going to be drawing from the well and bringing over to those camels to water. That's the kind of prayer Eliezer prayed because that's the kind of faith Eliezer had. Not only will Messiah build his body through the prayers of his people, and that's why we want to be a praying people. That's why we want to be praying for our community. That's why we want to be praying for our Jewish people, that the Lord would remove the veil that is over their eyes and open their hearts that they might see him. We want to see people come to know Messiah. Not only Jews, but Jews have a harder time because the veil is over their eyes, because they have a hardened heart because they've seen so much of what God has done throughout history and to whom much is given, much is required. And the work of salvation is a miraculous work that comes as a result of prayer. So we need to be praying for our people. We need to be praying for our congregation. We need to be praying for the leaders in our congregation. We need to be praying for one another, and we need to be praying for the leaders in our world. In fact, I don't know anything about which we ought not to be praying. We could spend our whole life just praying, you know? And so we need to be a praying people. The Lord has told us he will build his congregation and he will build it on the basis of prayer. Today, what I want to talk about, and we've talked about also he'll build his congregation on the transformation of the character of his people. And we looked at the story, whether it's a parable or not, we really don't know. Yeshua just says there was a certain man 
And so was it a parable? Was it a real story? But I'm talking about the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that story, if it says anything, is that God will transform the hearts of his people to become a more generous people. That's what separated the Samaritan from the Levite and the priest. He was generous. What was he generous with? He was generous with his clothes because he bound up the wounds of the one that was left naked on the roadway from Jerusalem to Jericho. He bound him with his own clothes. He placed him on his own beast to carry him. He brought him to another's inn for which he paid out of his own resources. He spent the night with him in which he gave of his own time. And then he left an open tab in the inn saying, whatever it costs to take care of this individual, take care of him. And on my way back, I will pay you for everything you have spent. He was generous with all of his resources and he just poured them out on this individual. And Yeshua was saying, that's what we need to become like. That's what the Lord wants to transform us to be. Why? Because that's the way God is. For God so loved the world that he gave out of his generosity, his son, that we might have life everlasting. This morning, what I want us to look at is one other aspect upon which the Lord will build his body, build his congregation. He will build it on faith. That's what this passage in Hebrews is all about. Let me just show you some things that jump out at me as I read this this passage and as I've studied it. In verse 14, he says, since then. This opening phrase, since then, can be translated in some as therefore. In light of what has just preceded this, therefore, he says, we have a great high priest. What did he say before? In the passage just before this section, it was a section on warnings. And the warning he gives is, don't be like our people. Remember, he's writing to Jewish believers. He's saying, don't be like our people, how they were in the wilderness when they had the opportunity to enter into the promised land, and they refused to because they lacked faith. There were two that had faith, Joshua and Caleb, and God would use them greatly in the book of, Judge, uh, book of Joshua, and then in the beginning of the book of Judges, you'll see how God uses Caleb. But both of these individuals were people of faith, and God used them mightily. But judgment fell on the nation because of their faithlessness. So he's saying, therefore, in light of how the Jewish people coming out of Egypt exhibited a faithlessness, he's telling them, in light of that warning, don't be like that. He says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. The point is, this is the one you want to cling to, to grasp onto, to hold onto. In fact, look at what he says in verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. What he's saying is, have a deep faith in him. Have a sold out faith in him. Hold on to him. Grasp hold of him. Don't fail to experience all he has for you. And so with great boldness or with great confidence... Trust in our Messiah. And so he's telling them, have a great faith and rely upon him. In fact, he says, 
We have a great high priest. Now, two things really strike me there. You know, throughout Israel's history, they've had high priests. The first high priest, of course, was Aaron. And the last of the high priests, if we want to say that, would be around 70 AD and would have been around the time of Caiaphas and and Annas, that group. Many of the high priests were not righteous people, as we see at the latter part of Israel's history, before the destruction of the temple. Because after the destruction of the temple, there's been no high priest, correct? No high priest since the destruction of the temple, 70 A.D. Today, if there was to be a high priest, he had to be a descendant of Aaron. How would they determine that? You know, we could determine Levites, those with names like Cohen. The word Cohen is the word priest. Cohen is a priest. So one of the ways that the Jewish people tried to preserve the Levitical priesthood was by last names, surnames. Names like Cohen, Khan, Katz. Levy, (laughs) I said to Chuck, I said, Levy, hey, that's a Levi. You should be one of our singers. Come on up here. And then I thought, no, we can't endure that. We can't endure that. Chuck's not here, so that's why I said that, you know. If he was here, I would have said, Chuck, he's a great voice. You know, he's he's a Caruso. But we all know he's not. He's not. But he is a Levite, and he is a priest, and he is an intercessor, and he is a mediator, and he's a great counselor. And he's a great prayer warrior, and he's a good man. But the neat thing about this is he doesn't say we have a high priest. What does he say? We have a great high priest. See, the writer can't even come up with, you know, just a, he can't just tell us we have a high priest who is in the heavens. He says we have a great high priest. Therefore, hold on to this one, for he is great. And notice what he says. He could have said... And there is a great high priest in the heavens. And he would have been right. But he doesn't say that. He says, we have a great high priest. We possess a great high priest. We have one who is our high priest that belongs to us and to whom we belong. Is that not unbelievable to think of? He's your high priest. You have a concern? Go to your high priest is what he's saying. Trust him, rely upon him, grasp hold of him, place your faith fully upon him. Because this high priest is not like the high priests of Israel in the past. The high priests of Israel in the past, if they passed through anything, they passed through the um, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. That's what the high priests in Israel passed through, Correct. And when they pass through that veil into the Holy of Holies, how often did they do that? Once a year. And they did that on Yom Kippur. And in order to do that, they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin first. But our great high priest is not like that. Our great high priest didn't merely pass through the veil in the temple on earth into the Holy of Holies, but he passed through the heavens. The veil of the heavens that separated the very presence of God from the very rest of the universe. You know, in Hebrew, Hebrew not only has a plural form, it also has a dual form. So the plural form in Hebrew is im. So we say Elohim, which means gods. So in the Bible, when you read gods with a small g, it's the Hebrew word Elohim, plural. 
when you read of our God, it's also the plural noun. But the unique thing is, whenever the plural noun of God is used with the true God of heaven and earth, it's always with a singular verb. So in the beginning, it says, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, gods he created. That's what it literally says. In the beginning, gods he created. But we understand because it's the true God who is one, we never translate Elohim plurally when it refers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But im is the plural ending. Everybody with me? But then there's a dual ending in Hebrew. When things come in pairs, it's not with im. It's with ayam. So when we have a hand, yad in Hebrew is a hand, you don't say yadim, hands. It's yadayim because there's two of them. Or one's eyes is a nayim. And when it comes to the heavens, the word is shamayim, too. So when he says, the writer, Yeshua passed through the heavens, and when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it appears that there are three heavens. And by the way, Paul says that, doesn't he? I know a man who is caught up to the third heaven. Into the very presence of God, he says in Second Corinthians. You could read at the end of the chapter, at the end of the book. So we have three heavens. The first heavens is the atmospheric heavens. That's the sky. When you look up and you see the clouds and you see the blue, that's the first heavens. When you look beyond the blue, which you really can't, but when we see in pictures space, you're into the second heavens, the stellar heavens. And then when you get through the stellar he- heavens... You come into the third heavens, which is the presence of God. That appears to be the cosmology in the scriptures. Yeshua didn't just pass through the veil in the holy place into the holy of holies. He passed through the heavens of the atmospheric and the stellar heavens to go into the very presence of God. And he entered into this heavenly sanctuary and the heavenly holy of holies, which was a model from which Moses drew up the tabernacle, and from which Solomon built the temple. The writer to the Hebrews is going to tell us that when Yeshua died, he took his blood. I don't understand this. I don't know how. But it says he took his blood, he sprinkled it on the mercy seat in heaven, not on earth. And so the writer is telling us, hold fast to our high priest, because he's not a high priest like others. He's a great high priest. And he didn't just pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. He passed through the heavens into the Holy of Holies in heaven. And he didn't merely put his blood on the mercy seat in Jerusalem, but the mercy seat in heaven. That's what the writer is saying. And he didn't put his blood on there for himself. He put his blood on there for you and I. For he is one who is tempted in all ways like we are, but without sin. So we have a great high priest. And this great high priest is one we should hold on to, grasp hold on on to, and not to let go. Because he's the one that can enable us to do what it is that needs to be done. In their case, to endure the Romans and their own countrymen and follow Messiah and flee to the mountains. We've talked about that in the past. For you and I, 
It's to do whatever God has called us to do and to become whatever God has called us to be. A holy people, a righteous people, a people serving one another, loving one another as one loves themselves, and to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How can we do that? We can't unless Messiah enables us to do it because he is our great high priest. And so he tells us, I mean, that's enough, right? That's enough. I can't take any more. But listen to this. He goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, this word sympathize, in the Greek it means to come alongside and suffer with. It doesn't just mean to have an attitude of concern for someone. It means that he suffers with us. He feels the pain you and I feel. And notice what he's sympathetic toward, our weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. Our bodies die. When we get sick, that's not a sin to be sick. Whoever said sickness is a sin? Sickness is a weakness that he comes along and, and suffers alongside of us. If Illness was a weakness and death, or if it was a sin, if death was a sin, Jesus died for our sins. If you're going to say death is the ultimate sickness, which is a sin, well, Yeshua then sinned, if you believe that. But death is not a sin. It's the result of sin. It's the weakness that came upon us because of our sin. You have emotional struggles and depression. That's not a sin. It's a weakness, Because of our limitations as human beings who are in sin, who are in sin, not who are sinning. I'm not saying sinfulness cannot result in those things. I'm only saying that sometimes they are not the result of those things. They're the result of weaknesses in our lives. Sometimes we make bad choices. People say, hey, you sinned against me because you did that. No, I made a bad choice, which was the result of a weakness because I can't think of everything that I wish I could think through. So I failed to think through it all. That's a weakness that he suffers alongside of with us. So when you hurt, he's hurting with you. When, you know what, we prayed with some people last week and some people struggling because of green cards and being uh, challenged about whether or not they'll be considered a citizen. Some in the Latino, Hispanic, whatever the right term is, community are particularly sensitive about that in our state. For sure, and maybe around the country. Well, when we agonize over that, we cry over that, the Lord cries with us. And so this is why we should draw near, grasp onto, because he sympathizes. He comes alongside. He just doesn't say, gee, I'm really sorry for you. But he's in there with you, genuinely so, feeling your pain with you whatever it might be. That's mind-boggling to me. The eternal Son of God suffers alongside of you. You would think his suffering on the cross where he endured eternal suffering was enough. But he says, it's not enough because I love my people. And get this, he is a high priest, right? A great high priest. And you remember what the high priest wore? He wore a breastplate. You see a symbol of it on the Torah scroll. He wore a breastplate. And it hung around his neck on his shoulders. Think about this. Each one of, on the breastplate, there were 12 different jewels. And each one of those precious stones represented whom? Israel. 
the high priest carried close to his heart his love for the Jewish people. That's what the high priest was symbolizing, his love for the Jewish people, not for the Chinese. I love the Chinese, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't Chinese tribes. It wasn't Eskimo tribes. It wasn't Germanic tribes. It wasn't Hungarian tribes. It wasn't South American tribes or South African tribes. It was Jewish tribes. Think about this now. God had on his heart a people he called out unto himself apart from all the other nations, and the high priest was to symbolize God's setting his love upon Israel, Deuteronomy 7, by wearing the breastplate that symbolized those 12 tribes. And around his shoulders, and in Scripture, interestingly enough, shoulders always represent the strength of someone, the strength of God. He would hold up his people, he would love his people. But now we have a great high priest. And our great high priest, he too, has the regalia that the priest had. But on his breastplate, not only has the tribes of Israel, but it has you. It has your name inscribed right there close to his heart. And his strength is there to hold you up. And so as our great high priest, we're to come to him in any kind of need. And notice what he says. He also has endured the temptations you and I have endured. Yet, he didn't fall prey to sin, and he endured those things as a sinless one. Now, he doesn't mean he's tempted the same way you're tempted. Yeshua was not tempted like you were. By the way, the way tempted means to be lured into sin. Just as you're not tempted the same way he is. Like, for example, when was the last time you were tempted to turn stones into bread? So it didn't ha- never, never happened. <laughs> Sometimes I've wanted some stones to be turned into bread. And last two weeks ago, I should have had something turned into water, you know. <laughs> but the point is, that's not a temptation for you. Why? Because you can't do it. But it was a temptation for Messiah. On the other hand, Messiah was never tempted to waste his time watching television. Never tempted to waste his time, you know, with the things that are mundane. He had a mission that he was called to do. What he was tempted was to do that mission in a short-term sort of manner. To secure the kingdoms of the world simply by bowing down to Satan. But no, no, no. He had to go through a certain process which involved his death before he could receive the kingdom, because he needed to be our priest as well as our king. But in all the channels through which temptations came, he experienced them. We can't go into it all this morning. We don't have the time. But what is important is he therefore knows how it is to experience the things you experienced. You know, it's really not true for a person to say, well, if you've never fallen prey to this temptation, you don't know how uh, powerful it can be or how disturbing or destructive it can be. I started thinking about this, but the reality is the person that you really want to draw close to is the person that went through the very same temptations you went through but did not succumb to them but was able to endure it. Right? Isn't that the person you want to come to? The person who says, I know what it's like to do this. Listen, this is what I did not to fall prey to it. We sometimes think, oh, the person that we really honor is the person who became like that and then came out of it. Wouldn't it be better for a person who is tempted to become like that but didn't because he said no to it? That's what we want. And that's what Yeshua provides in every instance. A temptation to but never does. 
rather than a temptation do who does and then repents of. Nothing wrong with repenting of it, but how much better it is not to do in the first place. And so he tells us to have this faith, to have this trust. Look at the last passage. There's more to be thought about. But he says in verse 16, let us then with confidence, that's his exhortation, draw near. How do you draw near? Through faith. That's what he's talking about. He's going to build his congregation on faith. He's saying have full confidence. And look what he says, and draw near to the throne of grace so as to receive mercy and grace in time of need. So what is it that you need? Draw to the throne of grace. Have faith in him. Ask him for his help. Ask him for his provision. Now, he doesn't say he'll give you what you want. But he will give you mercy and grace in time of need. Sometimes it's to endure it. Just as Yeshua endured great pain and agony, sweating drops of blood. Even when he said, not my will be done, but your will be done. Sometimes it's strength to endure it and to persevere. And sometimes it's deliverance from it. Because we're not praying our will be done. We're praying his will be done. And his will is always the best will, even if it's not what we would prefer or desire or find delight in. He will do his work in us that he would get the glory and we would grow in him. Now, the worship team can come up, but I want to show you one last thing. If you turn to Matthew chapter 15. I said the Messiah will build his congregation. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He'll build it on prayer. He'll build it on transformed lives to become more generous lives. He'll build it here on faith, on trust, on faithfulness. And I want to show you uh, uh, a, or point out a story of faith. And looking at Matthew chapter 15, It says in verse 21, as Yeshua went away from there, that is in the Galilee where he was, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That's the furthest north he ever goes. It's the one time he goes outside the land of Israel. And he beheld a Canaanite woman from that region, came out and was crying. Now pay attention to this. She says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And so just close the book for a a moment. And you say, this person comes, this mother comes and says, Lord Messiah, please help me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. What do you think Yeshua would do? You would say he'd do something. But what does he do here? It says he answered her not a word. You know, I've gotten into trouble because people have said something to me. I didn't hear them. And they say, hey, he's just ignoring me, (laughs) you know. But that's that's what Yeshua deliberately did to this woman. She's coming and begging, and he just is silent and doesn't answer a word. That's shocking to me. Now, the fact that he doesn't answer doesn't mean he didn't hear. He certainly heard, as you'll see. But notice, he does not respond to her. And then it says, and his disciples came and they begged him saying, send her away. She must have continued crying out. She's crying out after us. We can't take it anymore. Do something. Send her away. Do what she's asking so she'll leave us alone. And look what he answered. He doesn't say, okay, I'll do this. He then says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I have no... uh, 
obligation to do anything for this person. I mean, that's the second time. So what would you do at that point? At that point, I'd probably go and I would say, don't ever go to that congregation because the pastor there doesn't answer. And when he does answer, he says, I'm only sent to these people. He's not sent to us. What kind of a person is that? But that's what Yeshua says. And then look at this. She said, but she came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. Look what he says. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oh, my goodness. It doesn't even get better, you know. It just keeps going downhill. No, no, no. And then look at her response. She doesn't say, hey, what kind of a Messiah is this? I heard that you did all these great things. How could you treat me this way? You're so mean to me. You don't care about my daughter. You're not sensitive to me. You know, that's what I would expect. But look what she says. Truly, Lord. Yes, Lord, you're right. You aren't sent to me, and you're not supposed to give the food to, you know, others. I mean, she's agreeing with him. Is that amazing? She doesn't complain about him, but she agrees with him. You're absolutely, and she's not even Jewish. How does she know this? You know? And she says, you're absolutely right. But you know, sometimes it happens that the dogs around, now, if you came to my house, you wouldn't think of my dogs as dogs at all. They're like part of our family. But she says, but even the dogs sometimes pick up the scrap that's left behind. They're fortunate enough to catch something. Can I just catch something? Think of the humility of this and the desperation that she has. And what does Yeshua say? Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you just as you desire. You know, there's only one other person he says that about. That's a centurion, right? But great is your faith. Not because, you know, she expected him to do whatever he said, but simply because he tr- she trusted him as the Messiah of Israel. Whatever you do, it will be the right thing. But what moves him to do what she does desire is her great faith. And it's on such that he will build his congregation and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Wouldn't you love to have faith like that? A faith that says, yeah, you know, I wish this was taken away, but I get it, you know. And the Lord says, I'm going to do this for you. No demands on this woman's part, just a cry for help. No expectations and no argument and no complaints, but simply drawing close to the throne of grace and receiving that grace and mercy. doesn't say you'll receive healing and finances and all the things we would like, but you'll receive grace and mercy, and you might receive all the things that you desire. But you will receive grace and mercy. And with that, we can endure all things through Messiah, who not only provides it for us, but who suffered and died for us. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful for your word to us. May we be a people of faith and not of demands. May we be a people who receive and not complain. 
May we be a people who bow before you and are not arrogant. May we be a people who seek the mercy and grace and not having to have everything that we might desire go the way we would like. May we simply find our confidence in you and may we be ones that hold tightly unto you. For you are our great high priest. You carry our names close to your heart and you bear us up by your strong shoulders. So, Lord, may we not delay in coming to you and to lay our needs before you and to watch you take care of us. We pray this in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.